Okay, let's, uh, let's begin. Um, I think my job here tonight is to make all the mistakes so over the next couple of nights they can correct me. <laughs> what I want to speak about tonight, well, surprise, surprise, mindfulness. <laughs> um, I want to kind of correct uh, what I think are some misperceptions of mindfulness, particularly the way it's come to us in the Western world, and look at hopefully some of the, what I consider to be some of the subtleties of the way it's perceived within the Buddhist psychological approach. Mindfulness, well, we can't move, can we, these days without sort of bumping into it <laughs> in some way or another. Um, I've become so kind of disillusioned with the word mindfulness, I'm kind of trying to use different words and different phrases uh, to translate this Pali term sati, which you've already heard Christina use um, in her talk this morning, just about this word sati. And in many ways, what we can see is there is uh, overlap and similarities, but there's also a great deal of differences between what I call secular uses of the term mindfulness and the original Buddhist term sati. And it's some of those that I really would like to explore with you over this evening. The one thing that we do know, no matter what we call it, no matter what we call it, then something like mindfulness is, well, very well needed in this world, isn't it? We live busy, rushed, frenetic lives, uh, unfocused, fragmentary a lot of the time, and I don't think it was a lot better in the Buddha's time either. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just probably a little bit speedier in the contemporary era, perhaps, than it was in the Buddhist time when they would have measured things in, I don't know, number of cow days from one place to another, rather than, uh, you know, how many hours in a car. So things haven't changed, and I think one of the best statements, and I'm going to read this, I think I read this last year as well, when I was talking a little bit about mindfulness, but one of the best statements of the need for mindfulness, actually coming from a Western thinker, uh, was written in the 17th century, as far as I'm concerned, uh, by the French philosopher and mathematician Pascal. And I just would like to read this to you, because I think it's... Uh, within this quotation, there's an awful lot, I think, of what we need to address when looking at mindfulness in general. And this is what he says. We never keep to the present. We recall the past. We anticipate the future as if we found it too slow in coming and we're trying to hurry it up. Or we recall the past as if to stay its too rapid flight. We are so unwise that we wander about in times that do not belong to us and do not think of the only one that does. So vain that we dream of times that are not and blindly flee the one that is. The fact is, the present usually hurts. We thrust it out of sight because it distresses us. And if we find it enjoyable, we are sorry to see it slip away. We try to give it the support of the future and think how we are going to arrange things over which we have no control for a time we can never be sure of reaching. Let each of us examine his or her thoughts. You will find them wholly concerned 
with the past or with the future. We almost never think of the present. And if we do think of it, it's only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future. The present is never our end. The past and the present are our means. The future alone is our end. Thus, we never actually live, but we hope to live. And since we're always planning how to be happy, it's inevitable that we shall, we shall never be so. I think within that quotation, as I say, I think is a beautiful statement of everything you can find actually within the Buddhist teaching around this term that we translate as mindfulness, this term sati. And I'll probably make reference to this quotation as we go through what I'm having to say. First thing to perhaps note is the word mindfulness um, is a translation that was first adopted in 1881. Um, it was actually plucked out of the Book of Common Prayer and out of the Gospels and utilized by the early translators to try and translate this term sati. It's not bad as a translation, but it also loses a lot of the nuancing behind of the word sati that we find within the original language. Now, I don't want to go into a lot of you know, detail about the languages, but this word sati is actually derived from a Sanskrit and Pali term, Pali being the language in which some of the earliest texts are, are preserved. It's a sort of Middle Indian, Middle Indo-Aryan language um, that was close to the vernacular languages, was close to spoken languages, but wasn't actually ever spoken but it was used to preserve the teachings. And sati is um, the word which, as I say, we get as the word mindfulness, but actually has more of the connotation of remembrance and recollection. Of remembrance and recollection. And if we looked back in Indian history, we would find this remembrance and recollection was actually the recollection and remembrance of what is past. Yeah. Just the way we would normally use that sense of memory now to remember what, is, what has gone. And actually there's a whole class of Indian literature which is devoted to this, you know, which is remembered texts. They're basically almost sort of proto-history texts. Some of you might know them. They're texts like the Mahabharata, you know, this great Indian poem of 100,000 stanzas. It's a rather large poem. Um, it says about itself, by the way, that what's not in here is not worth knowing. <laughs> yeah. a, sl a slightly arrogant claim, but never mind. Um, but it has this quality of remembrance. However, in the Buddha's hands, and he, he did this a lot. This is well, part of his genius. He took words which were around in his culture, and he kind of gave them a twist to to make a different point, to bring out something else. And instead of remembrance of the past, what he was trying to do was bring about what he calls a remembrance or recollection of the present. Yeah. Strange usage, isn't it, slightly, even in English. I'm recollecting the present or remembering the present. However, I think these words work very well in English, actually. Actually, in general, Pali and English words don't overlap very well. 
But actually these do, because if we think about it, particularly if we poke a hyphen in there somewhere into remembrance and recollection, it's taking the mind out of scattered and fragmentary states and bringing it back into some degree of focus. Now, if you think about the Pascal quote, what is he saying in that Pascal quote? We're never thinking about the present. We're never in the present. We're strung out in terms of temporality into, into the past and projecting in the future. And probably the, the predominance of our thought processes are out there in the future, aren't they? Yeah. We're concerned with our projects, with our concerns, what we want to happen. Yeah. And why are we doing that? Well, just again, in the sense, again, there's a really good overlap here between the Pascal quote and what the Buddha is saying is because the present actually is distressing in some way. Yeah. So we find a congruence here, I think, between the 17th century thinker and a two and a half thousand year old thinker coming from a completely different tradition. And that congruence, I think, actually speaks to us in the modern world. And hence the reason why I think that mindfulness-based applications in general, MBSR, which is much more predominant, obviously, in the US, and MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, um, which is much more prevalent in, well, particularly in the UK and other parts of Europe. The starting place of all of these, whether these ancient traditions or these more modern traditions, is human distress. Yeah. The distress that's going on now, the chronic pain, which John Kabat-Zinn was um, you know, dealing with when he developed MBSR, uh, the mental health conditions that um, Mark Williams and others like John Teasdale and that and Zindel Siegel were involved in when they were looking at depressive relapse. These are real human distressing situations, aren't they? You know, that bring and often destroy lives. You know, lives riddled with chronic pain, pains that are never going to go away, and lives which are, in a sense, constantly, constantly undermined by depressive mental health problems. Yeah, these are the kinds of problems we have in the modern era. Yet, outside of those clinical applications, uh, the Buddha is saying something even more profound, is that human beings live lives of distress, whether they have these clinical conditions or not. Yeah. We have this. Um, we have this pain. We have this unsatisfactoriness, this dissatisfaction that shadows us often in our lives. Yeah. No wonder we're planning for the future. <laughs> yeah. um, as the poet Rambo once said, life is always elsewhere. Yeah. Never here. Never right now. And it's interesting that uh, when we start to think about what is, what is sati for, what is this mindfulness for, whether we use either term, doesn't really matter in the end. What is it for? It's to bring us back into this moment. Yeah. Now, I want to unpack 
a little bit about what that coming back into this moment might mean in the more positive senses, not just in the sense of dealing with distress in my second talk, which I'll give on Wednesday. But tonight I want to stay a little bit with the stress that we discover when we really, really begin to palpate our reality, touch it, yeah, and not simply try to evade it. And even if we don't have chronic pain, mental health conditions, any clinical categorizable problem, we still have problems. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> we still have problems. Um, problems of dissatisfaction, problems of things not being actually the way that we want them to be. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, the whole dimension of sati, and I might say that in Buddhist texts, in these early Buddhist texts, the word sati is the most used technical term in the whole of this voluminous body of material which we call the Pali Canon, which is the preservation of the teachings of the Buddha. It's the most used term. And what is it dedicated to? Well, it's dedicated to what, in a sense, is the Buddha's project, which is a project of waking up. Yeah? Now, you've heard that phrase even used today so far, you know, without even me coming to you know, give you the talk. You've already heard that term. This path, this particular you know, mode of development is dedicated to waking up. What does that mean if, we're, if it's dedicated to waking up? Interestingly, and again, I don't want to go into detail about this, but you know, the term Buddha, which is an epithet, by the way, it's not a name, it's an it's a epithet which is given to somebody who's achieved something in you know, Indian thought and Indian religion, um, who's some, achieved something rather remarkable. And this is usually indicated as being a Buddha is, is, is an awakened one. Yeah? He's not enlightened, actually. You'll see that word, I want to banish that word, the word enlightenment. Um, for me, that occurred in the 18th century in the West, enlightenment. Yeah. It didn't occur to the Buddha. What the Buddha did was wake up. And what was he waking up to? He was waking up to the way things were. Yeah. This is really important because you know, this path, this path, whether we conceive of it in the Buddhist term or even in these modern secularized forms, is dedicated, in a sense, to waking up to the reality of what is here, what is there for you right now. Yeah? That may be pain. That may be distress in these clinical forms. But it might just be your dissatisfaction. Yeah? And there's a term for this which is used. I'm, I'm sure many of you have encountered this already, you know, particularly those who've been to IMS before. And this term is dukkha, you know, usually translated as suffering. Uh, again, it's a translation I want to banish. I'm, I'd really like to rewrite the lexicon of words that we use to translate early Buddhist terms because they're not very accurate. And translating the term dukkha by suffering actually cuts out most of what is going on for you probably right now, yeah? which is usually just simply being dissatisfied. Yeah? 
I often say to students, um, if, if there is anything at this moment, not in the future, but at this moment, you, you would like changed to be different at this moment, you are having dukkha. <laughs> yeah. As uh, one of my teachers originally, when I first trained in India, um, who was one of the Dalai Lama's tutors, I was very lucky in my early monasticism um, to encounter and study with one of the Dalai Lama's tutors. And he used to say, Dukkha wasn't like being stabbed. It was like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. <laughs> now, yeah, I just saw by your faces and oh... <laughs> That, that has resonances, doesn't it? It has a lot of resonances because you can think about that. You know, rubbing your arm against a brick wall, it doesn't start off very painful, does it? What happens? It's repetition, isn't it? It becomes more and more painful that you repeat. And a lot of our dukkha is created by the compulsion to repeat again and again and again. From the Buddhist perspective, everybody has obsessive-compulsive disorder. <laughs> yeah. And why is that? Primarily because we haven't woken up. And what we do is we repeat in order to evade, often. We have strategies, habit patterns, formations. These are all kind of words and terms which are used in the text, or translated anyway from the text, which deal with our, you know, which actually are indicative of our ways of dealing with things. We have patterns, don't we, of dealing with things, you know, with physical things, with mental things. You know, um, and sometimes they work, but a lot of the times they don't. And actually, I don't know if you've ever found this yourselves, but often you find actually they have unintended results, often creating more distress. You know, in situations where you thought they were going to alleviate it. And so this is what the whole practice of mindfulness was dedicated to. You know, actually, rather than a Dharma talk of an hour, this really ought to be a week's course. You know, because what it was dealing with, what he was looking at, was the way that this term mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness dealt with even our cognitive faculties, you know, our perceptive processes. Yeah. So when we start to look at this fairly innocuous term, mindfulness, it actually covers a lot. And particularly if we maintain it in its Pali version of sati, which I'm now going to retranslate, not in a word, but in a phrase, it'll never catch on. <laughs> I think mindfulness is definitely the word that's here to stay, so I'm kind of stuck with it. Um, but if we really translate this properly, what we're talking about in terms of this sati is recollection of the present moment or present moment recollection or present moment awareness. We can use any of those, any of those three offerings, really. Present moment awareness, present moment recollection, or simply recollection of the present moment. This is what's happening. So actually mindfulness is dedicated to the recollection of being here. This is what it is. And this is one of the paradoxes, isn't it? You know, in these traditions, we speak about paths. You know, and paths usually lead somewhere. 
Yeah. Where are we going? <laughs> well, the simple answer in, in Buddhist terms is, you know, in this path of mindfulness, is we're not actually going anywhere. <laughs> we're actually trying to get back to where we are. Yeah. To come back from this attenuation that's being pulled out in terms of past and future. Fleeing into the future. Dwelling back in the past. And even sometimes we don't just have the past, do we, in terms of our own historical past. We go back even further and say, oh, it must have been better back in the Buddha's time. No, it wasn't. In ancient India, two and a half thousand years ago, they were saying, oh, it was better in the old days. (laughs) What we have is this human yearning for golden eras. We look, don't we, back often at other times and think they were better. So we have this path which is dedicated, strangely, as I say, paradoxically almost, to getting back to where we are and really beginning to explore it, really beginning to know where we are. And what is implied in this getting back to where we are is, in some sense, learning to slow down. Now, it's strange, and again, almost sounds paradoxical, Slowness doesn't necessarily, is not necessarily in tension with doing things quickly. Because it requires in slowing down that we do them with awareness. And this is what sati is dedicated to, is doing things with awareness. Again, I just want to just quote something for to you, which is, uh, again... I want to try and bring this into the, our Western world as much as possible, that not just leave it in this two-and-a-half-thousand-year-old tradition. Um, the author Milan Kundra said this about speed. He said, speed, the demon of speed, is often associated with forgetting, yeah. with avoidance, and slowness with memory and confrontation. We move slowly when we want to listen to ourselves. We move slowly when we want to listen to others. We move slowly when we want to listen to the world around us. We move slowly when we want to learn to accept ourselves. The rush of contemporary life overwhelms, as he says, and our ability to observe and to hear and to step back and wonder. That is what we lose in being caught up in the compulsions of unmitigated speed. Now, in many ways, we all get caught up. We get caught up in this, and our jobs often demand this of us. But somehow is there, and this is a genuine question, it's not just rhetorical, is there a way of being able to move slowly within often the stresses and strains and the demands that are made of us? And I don't mean moving at a snail's pace. (laughs) Is there a way of having a focused mind 
that can move into the situations in our homes, in our relationships, uh, in our workplaces, whereby we can genuinely be there and genuinely experience what is going on in those moments, to be aware, in other words. Hopefully I'll unpack that a little more when we go, you know, when I give my second talk. So, this path, the sati, is dedicated to waking up. Dedicated to waking up is dedicating oneself, and I know others are going to talk about this much more fully, but I just want to name it tonight, is waking up to the way things are, and the way things are is that often they are dukkha. There is an inevitability to it. Yeah? There is a dukkha which is the dukkha which is simply through being. You know, I have a body, and I've suddenly come to the realization that it's aging. <laughs> And it's getting more painful. Yeah. And no matter what you do and can do about it, uh, I can yeah, perhaps stem the tide a little, but uh, it's not try- I'm not holding back the ocean here. <laughs> yeah. But there is change. There is impermanence. Yeah. This is part of the human condition. That is part of the dukkha of being alive. You know, this is something the Buddha says. You know, birth, old age, sickness, and death. These are the dukkhas that we have. You know, I think as one tricycle edition put it in a kind of spoof movie poster, coming to you soon. <laughs> yeah, old age, sickness, and death. <laughs> yeah, these are not things we avoid. Yeah. They're not things we can avoid. And so they're part of the inevitability of the dukkha. And yet the dukkha can be exacerbated, can't it? It can be magnified. Now, probably many of you um, have come across the notion of the two arrows. It's often used, for example, even in teaching MBSR. There is the what is happening to you. And there is, if you like, the other arrow that hits you. Um, I almost say it's the arrow that you push into yourself willfully. <laughs> the, self-infli- in the self-inflicted pain, the self-inflicted wound, uh, the ways that we wound ourselves in relationship. You know, not only do we have the sickness or the aging or whatever it might be, the loss, the change, but we rail against it. We get angry, we reject it, we push it away, we try to change it. We do all of these things, almost like children. You know, when the child doesn't like something, what does it do? It stamps its feet in rage. You know, and often, actually, no matter how old we are, we haven't actually grown up that much. You know, we've just become a little bit more sophisticated with language. Um, But basically, the emotions are still the same. Rage that things are not going my way. Rage that things are not happening in the way I wanted them to do. And what is occurring in that? Well, we're inflicting more pain on ourselves, aren't we? We're inflicting yet more pain. We actually rarefy our pain. 
And this is something the Buddha is trying to create an awareness in us about. Trying to make us aware of our own implication often in the pains that we experience. Again, mindfulness is dedicated to understanding that. Yeah. And so, if we start to delineate levels of mindfulness, the first stage of this waking up process that sati is dedicated to is of developing a simple awareness of what is going on. As I often say to groups like yourself, you know, here is your mantra from the week for the week. You know, I don't get in, I'm not much into mantras these days, but here's one for you anyway. And here the mantra is in English. It goes, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Keep that as a mantra for your week. <laughs> you know, we think we know what's going on. A lot of the time we don't. Yeah. We're not actually here. We're often fantasizing about how things could be different. Yeah. We've already moved away from it, or we slip back into memory about the past, not memory about the present. There is avoidance. This is one of our most basic, basic strategies, isn't there? Avoidance. Yeah? Trying to avoid that which is painful. Again, Pascal, why do we avoid the present? Because it usually hurts in some way. Yeah? In many senses, most of us carry wounds around with us. And those wounds are very painful. You know, just through the wounds of life. You know, we have a, our, the human condition, for me, is one of woundedness. Yeah? But this does not, I repeat not, have to make us miserable, depressed, pessimistic. Actually, when we begin to understand our woundedness and use this woundedness, this dukkha that we inhabit as a base, then we can start to move forward. But we have to understand it. We have to understand where we are. We don't have to tease it apart. We don't have to go back into it and almost do an archaeology of the soul. We don't have to do that, but we have to accept what is there, what is present, what is, what is going on for us. That's, again, related to the mantra, isn't it? You know, what's going on for us at this moment? What pains or joys are present at this moment in time? And the pains can be both physical and mental, and the joys and the upliftment of the heart can also be here. When we embark on this journey of simple awareness, we begin to really begin to map our minds and bodies. We begin to map them. Think of yourselves as I mean, those explorers you know, back in the 19th century, perhaps, you know, who were you know, charting this country, for example, in the early 19th century, moving into unknown territories. You know, where they didn't know the geography, didn't know the landscape. Or those you know, explorers of Africa 
who moved into unknown regions, you know, not knowing where they were, not knowing the language, not knowing, you know, again, the topography. This is what you're doing. You're mapping your mind. You're mapping your mind-body, actually, not just the mind. This is the first stage of this mapping, getting to know what is there. Yeah. There is the jagged rock over there from which I can fall and tumble and hurt myself. Here is the lake of tranquility, of peace, of joy. Yeah. Here is the landscape of wonder that can open up before us. Uh, here is the, the travails of the valleys of distress behind us. You know, so we begin to map all of that. We begin to see it without partiality. And that's so difficult, isn't it? Because our partiality is expressed in two primary movements of our minds towards that which we want and that which we don't want. Yeah. We move towards that which we want and we move away from that which we don't want. Yeah. We're doing this continuously. We're, we're almost like those, you know, those flowers, those plants that move towards the sun and move away from something else which is you know, not conducive to it. We're watching those movements of mind. We're beginning to map them. We're actually learning to use almost a metaphor, but also there's something literal about it. We're learning to see for the first time. Yeah? We begin to map and to see also in this process of sati. We begin to map and see the, the terrain of this, the, the good things and the bad things. And this is likened in a simile in the texts to somebody who's standing on a platform overlooking a landscape and beginning to see that landscape. Here's the people moving over here. Here's the forest in the foreground. Here's the plain. And I can see it. Yeah. Now some things will change. And I think we all know that by seeing them. They start to drop away. Yeah, just by simply seeing, by acknowledgement. And perhaps it's worth adding in at this stage, and this will also probably get developed over the course of this week, that part of that learning to see, part of that turning towards what is there, is probably one of the most basic, kindly acts that you can give to yourself. Yeah. We speak about metta. Metta here becomes another form of mindfulness. Yeah. Not a separate, unrelated practice. It's a form of mindfulness that is prepared to turn towards what is there. Not in judgment, but with a caring and kindly eye. It's learning, in a sense, in this simple awareness to develop that kindly eye. Yeah. To the most distressing and the most beautiful dimensions of your heart, body, and mind. You know, to what is actually going on for you. Now, as I say, some things will change. Other things might not. Yeah. I think it would be unrealistic wouldn't it, to think that we're going to change everything 
by simply watching it. Uh, as I often put it, sometimes by watching it, we just get a nicer view of the mess. <laughs> yeah. We can detail it out a little bit more. And so there are much more proactive dimensions to sati as well. However, this is fundamental. This learning to see, this process of actually looking at what is there and mapping and all the things I've spoken about so far. You know, this is fundamental. Nothing can occur unless we're prepared to enter into that process. You know, this requires energy. Yeah. This requires commitment. In the text, it requires, if you look at this Satipatthana text, where all of this is, um, in a sense, preserved, in the Satipatthana text, it requires ardency. A lovely old-fashioned English word to be ardent about it. Um, to turn an eye of ardency, of energy and passion towards an interest and curiosity. I think we could unpack that word in many, many different ways of what is required of us to engage in this. You've already, already heard again today, I'm not saying anything you haven't encountered already, you've heard this interest, curiosity as being fundamental. You know, I've said it to you in my mantra, <laughs> haven't I? What's going on? Come on, be interested. Yeah. There's something really interesting about what's going on here, right now, right at this moment, isn't there? I don't know if you can see that. Right now, there's something you know, really interested in, in what is occurring in your mind, your body, your heart. Yeah. As this breath arises and this breath disappears, the uniqueness of that, yeah, of that breath. I don't know if we ever appreciate this, that this breath, which seems, oh gosh, we're doing breathing meditation yet again. <laughs> yet, that breath that you encounter at that moment is unique. Yeah? It won't come back again. Yeah. This is part of the passage. This is part of the waking up. We wake up to the impermanence, the stream of what's going through our minds. Each permutation, each combination of thought processes Dare I say it, each anxiety and each fear is unique to that moment. Yeah? It has a similar flavor to other moments, but it's unique to that moment. And that's, in a sense, also what we're waking up to. So there's something, and I, I hesitate saying this, but there is almost something wondrous about that, isn't there? Yeah? About that going on, even. Yeah. Yet we can become fixated in this, and we become fixated in pushing it away, and fixation on pushing it away is actually carrying it with us. Yeah. In that. Whereas perhaps the wiser movement is turned towards and acknowledge. The phrase that I encountered again and again and again in my own training, I trained both in India and Sri Lanka, in my own training, was learning to befriend what is there. Not making an enemy out of what is there. Why do we need to make enemies out of our thoughts? Why do we need to do that? Why do we need to make an enemy out of change? Yeah. Actually, change is, is, is Jaina's face. It looks in two directions, doesn't it? 
Some of it works for us and some of it works against us. You know, when your headache goes, you celebrate. You know, when you get one, you don't. Yeah. So things move both for us and against us. You know, and actually we're embedded into a world and a landscape of change. And some of that is painful and some of it isn't. And so these are two elements that we're waking up to with this mind of sati. And we can contact these immediately. We can contact them in our physical mental processes. We contact the dukkha, the unavoidability of certain pains. And we know this just, you know, probably even at the end of a day like today. Many of you are starting to feel physical pains. You know, certainly discomfort there just through the activity of sitting for so long. Yeah. We're not used to it, not in this way. We might have come across distressing mental patterns in a day. On the other side, we might also have begun to touch and palpate little areas of calm, little areas of joy. Yeah, they might be fleeting, they might be quick, but we begin to touch them. Yeah. So we see that. Now, if your pain stayed forever, this would not be good. Yeah. Actually, I think if joy stayed forever, it wouldn't be too good either. Yeah. What we're talking about is we live change. Yeah. This is the ocean which we swim in, the ocean of change. And there is nothing more changing than you. Yeah, you yourself, and this is in fact the third aspect that we wake up to, that you are process. You are not a thing. Yeah, it doesn't sound much. You are a verb and not a noun. <laughs> yeah. This is something that we are again waking up to, this fact of us being process. This is all part of what we begin to touch in simple awareness. The first stage of sati. Now, in the Western world, I said I was going to explore some of this. In the Western world, this sometimes, I say sometimes, because I think actually it's much more implicit, but sometimes it gets taken for being what mindfulness is. Mindfulness, or this present moment awareness, this present moment recollection, is simply becoming aware of what is happening. Yes, this is fundamental. This is important. But there are other dimensions of our mindfulness where we actually are not just observers. We start to do things. Yeah. And the next stage, another way of delineating mindfulness is protective. Protective awareness. Yeah. Protective mindfulness. Now, this makes sense. I don't know, you know, perhaps you know, as I go through it, it might start to make more sense. This makes great sense to me. That sometimes there are things that are in your lives that are painful. Very, very painful. You know, trauma. Um, you know, through our histories. And that, that woundedness that I've spoken about that often we carry around with us. And actually, now might not be a good time to go probing it, yeah. to go poking it. Yeah. All we're doing is finding out just how painful it is. 
You know, it's a bit like having a wound to keep pressing it, isn't it? Just to say, ow, oh, that really does hurt. <laughs> yeah. And we do that again and again and again. Sometimes we have to protect ourselves from those really painful dimensions. Not to say we will never visit them. But what we're saying is that perhaps we need greater stability, greater ability to be able to approach those things in our lives. A greater enhanced awareness of what our possibilities are in relationship to this. Yeah. This is again, I hope you can hear it, even in the language I'm using, a process of waking up. Yeah. This is not anesthetization. We're not anesthetizing ourselves. We're not pushing away. We're not repressing. When we protect ourselves from something, it's in the full awareness. I know it's there. But I don't have to probe it at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it might be that movement from having an open wound to having a wound where the skin has started to grow back again. And you can perhaps stand a little bit of pressure on it, you know, to use a, a very corporeal metaphor there. So this is another stage, and I think we can see this, and perhaps even if I put it in another simile, you know, it's, it's, it's like somebody with, a, say, an addictive problem. You know, somebody who really knows they have an addictive problem might say to themselves, I, if I'm alcoholic, I don't walk into a bar. You, know, you protect yourself from it. There are some places in your, you know, in your mind you don't need to visit if you know it's going to take you to other places which actually can exacerbate the problem to make it even greater and bigger than it is, even at this stage. So we're doing that. We're protecting the mind. The Buddha likens this again in his similes to a gatekeeper. Yeah? Um, it's a city with a wall around it, and it has six gates in it. All the six gates uh, cover the six sense bases. Yeah, and there's the five normal sense bases, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, so on and so forth. And also the mind, which in Buddhist psychology is considered to be also a sense base. The whole purpose you know, is what we're doing. Just like the eye contacts visible things, the mind contacts you know, thoughts, images, whatever's passing through. It's another sense base. So we have the six gates, and on each gate we have a gatekeeper. And what the gatekeeper does, it lets in the friends of the city and keeps out the enemies of the city. Guess what the gatekeeper's name is? Sati. <laughs> yeah? This is what Sati does. It protects as well. Now that protection, I hope you can see this so far, that protection is based on Obviously, an understanding of what is going on. Yeah. Your protection would be ill-placed, um, you know, ill-founded, often if it wasn't based on an understanding of what is actually happening. Yeah. To know where those painful areas are, 
Sometimes often not in our normal consciousness, often unacknowledged, aren't they? You know, we sometimes move around in our world with repression, repressing that which we don't want to know about you know, in our lives. And so sati is protecting. It's protecting the mind you know, from going to places which would be ill-advised to go to at this moment in time. Sati also has another function, which is often a way of referring to it as a kind of introspective awareness, an awareness of how to sometimes remove the problems, how to deal with them once they've arrived. You know, because you know, with the best will in the world, sometimes our protection doesn't work, does it? The pain gets through. Whatever the problem is gets through to us. And the Buddha again uses a simile. The similes, I think, you know, speak volumes. Here. The simile is here of a surgeon. And the surgeon is probing an arrow wound. And the arrowhead is embedded in the flesh. And what he uses is a surgeon's probe, like a long, thin instrument. What he's doing is inserting it into the wound, finding the dimensions of the arrowhead, its shape, its size, so that the arrowhead can be removed with as least damage as possible. The name of the probe, again, is sati. This is what sati is doing. It's probing often the dimensions of your problems. How best can we deal with them? So I hope you're getting slightly, even just from, even at this stage, uh, a slightly different impression of mindfulness, that mindfulness is not just being simply aware, it's moving into these other areas of protection and dealing with problems. Learning how to skillfully extract them, just like we could extract the arrowhead you know, and this was a poisoned arrowhead, actually, in the simile, without leaving any poison behind, you know, to remove this out of, literally, out of our flesh. Yeah. And then we have another form of mindfulness. Yeah. There are actually many forms, but I only give you these four. And this is de- deliberate cognitive reframing. Now, you won't find any, any language like that in the texts, but basically, this is what's going on. Deliberate cognitive reframing. Yeah? Um, that means reframing things for yourself. Yeah? Painting them in a different picture. However, I don't really want to go into too much detail about that, but I'll give you the most basic cognitive reframing. It's called meta. <laughs> Learning to befriend yourself. Using categories to develop meta towards, say, somebody you dislike. Yeah. So you're using a cognitive frame in order to re-perceive yourself and these other categories, including somebody who, as I say, you might dislike, certainly have some degree of antipathy towards. Yeah. So you're moving in to a different way of looking at your relationships. This is relational. 
This is you know, it's quite striking, isn't it? One of the most basic, basic fundamental elements, we might say, here of some degree of mindfulness, again, not seeing it as a separate practice, is the development of metta. In this text, again, Christina referred to it, I think, this morning, this text called the Metta Sutta. Sutta is just a discourse. It means something well said in Pali. Yeah. The Metta Discourse, the discourse on boundless friendliness, yeah. not loving kindness, yeah. boundless friendliness. This is referred to in this text as a sati, as a form of mindfulness. Yeah. This form of mindfulness, again referencing that text, is referred to in this way. It says, quite simply, there is no better way of being in this world. Yeah, it's quite a big statement, isn't it? And you can think about that. There is no better way of being in this world than with boundless friendliness. Which includes you. <laughs> and I say that because often that's our most difficult category. Yeah? Our most difficult category is often ourselves. That extension of the friendliness towards that which we see ourselves. And so there is something about this cognitive reframing, this form of sati, which is not about developing false emotions. Yeah? It's not about developing false emotions. In fact, we can write out the whole emotional quality to it. It is literally inclining the mind in a particular way. Yeah? Again and again and again inclining it with friendliness. If you want to put it in slightly more contemporary terms, this is a behavioral gesture with the mind. Yeah. Just like cognitive behavioral therapy will work sometimes with people engaging in activities that they find difficult. Yeah. Encouraging them to do that with support, and with encouragement and all the things that we use to develop that, well, actually what this is, we're doing this for ourselves with our minds. Yeah? So it's not de about developing a false feeling, just like the person who has a phobia is not saying, well, the phobia is going to go away. It's getting you to engage in the behavior. So perhaps the phobia starts to move into a different way of being held within it, so I can engage in getting on my, with my life in a certain way. And the same is true here with this form of sati. Yeah. So we have numbers of different strategies of sati. Yeah. We have the most primary form of basic awareness, of simple awareness, mapping your mind, of moving into understanding where the problems are, and learning sometimes to protect ourselves yeah, in our woundedness, in our dukkering, yeah, one might add, if I turn that into a verb form as well, uh, it might be also beginning to know how to deal with the dimensions, just like the surgeon does, with the dimensions of the problem and the ways that we can deal with that without leaving residue without leaving something which will reconfigure itself, we regrow in our experience. Sometimes it also takes this very positive form of deliberately reframing things. 
And as I say, there are many ways of doing this, but one of the most basic ways, and I'm simply saying this because we're going to do this in the course of the retreat, is actually developing this inclination of the mind, which we call metta, derived from this term to befriend something in the original language. The basic act of friendliness. So sati is very nuanced. It doesn't come in one form. Sati is this dedication to learning to wake up. The Buddha stresses this, as I've said, again and again and again that this is the most fundamental dimension of learning to wake up. Just to deal with one other dimension of what sati is engaged in is in our cognitive processes. The world in its, in our compulsions, the way it's perceived through our compulsions, through our habits, through our simple strategies of dealing with life. Um, And they're there for a reason, aren't they? All of those things, those habits, those strategies and everything, they're there for control. But what we do often in those techniques of controlling the world, of being able to deal with the world on our own terms, or so we think, is that we create an all-too-familiar world. Yeah? A world of self-fulfilling prophecies, in many senses. A world which is achingly familiar. And what we lose is something, again, I'm going to touch on this, so don't you know, think I'm going to just leave this hanging this evening. But we lose something which I think is fundamental to our human condition that is so, so important, which is this sense of wonder that Kundara, in that little quotation that I read to you, refers to. That ability to step back and wonder. We lose that in the familiarity, don't we? Oh yeah, there's another sunset. Or we get into comparisons. This sunset's not quite as nice as the one I saw last week. (laughs) We have ways, in a sense, of bringing it back into the familiar, into the familiarity. One of the other dimensions I think that sati is dedicated to in this process of waking up and coming back to where we are rather than to trying to get to some other place, is to bring us back to a place that appears to be familiar, but isn't. Yeah. Now, I don't think that makes sense. To bring us back to where we already are, and to create, or to re-engage with it, in a way where it doesn't seem so achingly familiar where your partner, for example, isn't just somebody who's been around for years. You see them differently. Or the sunset, the tree. 
This is why we have in these simple instructions, isn't it? Engagement with little things that you think that, well, why are they saying that? I mean, perhaps, perhaps you, again, are so familiar with this, you don't even reflect on it now. You, know, you hear these simple instructions such as, you know, be aware of points of contact. You know, the touch of your clothing on your body. Your feet on the floor or your legs resting on the floor. The feel of the warmth or coolness on your exposed skin. You know? These are happening to us all the time, aren't they? They've become so familiar, they've become just background. They've become wallpaper. Yeah? Yet our very sense of being here is often written into the minutiae of our experience. Yeah? We often look in terms, I think, misplaced personally. This is a personal reflection here. We often look for meaning in our lives in big things, as if it's out there. And yet it's somehow always present in the small dimensions and the minutiae of our experience, if we can wake up to them, if we can defamiliarize them. To defamiliarize them is to re-perceive them. Have you ever, often ever wondered to yourself, do I actually ever see anything new? Yeah. One of the psychological conditions that we find, you know, as you get older, is that time increases, doesn't it? Speeds up. Why is that? Because we're not encountering difference. Yeah. When you're a child, you know, when those summer holidays or whatever it was seemed endlessly long, it was because you're often encountering new phenomena again and again and again. There was often a sense of wonder. Yeah, you wouldn't say that as a child, but that's actually what was be, often being experienced. Yeah. There was a kind of eternity, as Blake would put it, in the moment, wasn't there? When you were encountering something different. Yeah. Now, okay, to try and draw this to some conclusion here, yeah. not an absolute conclusion, because I want to continue again uh, further on in the week. But in this process of sati, of learning to map, learning to see, learning to know where to protect ourselves, how to deal with our problems, to reconfigure and that. Learning, in some senses, to re-experience the familiar is to come back to where we are. This path is interesting, as I say, because it's a path which is a paradoxical path in that it doesn't lead anywhere. I'm not saying this. Christina said it. You'll probably hear many, many other teachers say this. It's not as if even, let's me use the big Buddhist word, which all of you will be familiar with, you know, even if you're you know, encountering this kind of idea, these ideas for new, you will know this word, nirvana. Yeah, I even turned a rock band, I made a rock band out of it. <laughs> Interestingly enough, they made a perfume out of its opposite, <laughs> called sangsara. But when we encounter this word nirvana, even that is not some other place. Nirvana refers to, in a sense, to waking up to here, to where we are. You know, perhaps I'll say some more about that another evening. 
but this word doesn't indicate Buddhist heaven, somewhere you go to. It's actually here, right now, at this moment. This is what's important about it. But, let me add, this does not mean the evasion of Dukkha. It would be completely unrealistic, wouldn't it, to think, even if I am nirvanaing, which is a better way of putting it, it's a verb form, actually, in the original language. The only way I can create it into a verb in English is to put an ing on the end of it. You know, if we're nirvanaing, we're not going some other place. We're encountering here and now with its dukkha, with its aging, with its sickness, with its pain, but actually without additives. Yeah. This is very organic, isn't it? You know? How do you like your life, with or without additives? <laughs> yeah. The additive here is secondary dukkha, the dukkha that we create for ourselves. And that, again, is what we're waking up to, that dukkha that we're creating for ourselves in our misaligned strategies to try and deal with life. Now, none of this is saying at all that what we're engaging in, in a sense, is bad. Actually, the words that tend to be used in Buddhist texts are not good and bad. They're used very occasionally, but they're not the predominant words. The words are skillful, unskillful, wholesome or unwholesome. Actually, what we've developed in our course of our lives in terms of our habits and our strategies are unskillful response, unskillful reactiveness towards life. Unskillful reactions, and we keep applying them. It's not that it makes us bad people, it just makes us unskillful. What we're learning, and this is what nirvana even is itself, is a skill. When we look at Buddhist texts even, like the Satipatthana Sutta, they're skills training manuals. Yeah? This is what they're about. These are the kind of skills you need to live wholesomely in the, this world. And the predominant skill you need is often at the, at the top of many of the lists that you find in Buddhist texts. And you'll probably find out if you haven't delved into Buddhist texts that Buddhists are list fetishists. They love lists. And often at the top of those lists is the word sati at the top of that list. And that's because it's primary in what we need to be engaged. And it's not exclusive, but it's extremely important in our development of learning to be here skillfully in this world. I think at the end of this, I should say, to be continued. (laughs) Okay, thank you for your attention. (laughs) Thanks. Okay, we now have uh, some time for some walking before coming back for a short sitting. So I would suggest coming back quarter to nine. So, yeah. So if we can come back at quarter to nine for a final short sit, roughly about 15 minutes just to finish off the day and to quiet our minds again. Okay, thank you, everybody.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.